0: Welcome to this week's episode of Stand Out, growing in the organizing and productivity profession, brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Every episode, we will learn from NAPO members and subject matter experts as they share their successes, challenges, best practices, proven strategies, industry developments, and more. And now, here's your host, Claire
1: Kumar, NAPO member since 2010. Hi, and welcome to another episode of NAPO's Podcast Standout. I'm your host, Productivity Catalyst, Claire Kumar, and as always, so happy to be with you. I'm really excited this week to have a continuation on in our discussion of DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. If you go back through our history, we've had some conversations earlier, which I really encourage you to tune into as well. There's rich conversation from our members and also from experts outside who are bringing insight into this conversation. Today, we're going to have a conversation. If you're watching the video, you'll see I have two NAPO members with me. I'm going to give a bit of a setup to what we're going to talk about today and introduce them just shortly. So hang tight for that. What I thought we would do today, which is a little bit different, is really dive into understanding the lived experience of two of our members, and I'll throw probably some comments in as well, of people who have felt excluded in their personal and professional lives, and to invite the sharing of stories so you as the listener can really understand, gee, what might it have been like to experience that? What would I do in that situation if I ever encountered a situation like that? And so the objective here is to, as far as building our understanding of what we can do to further our growth as humans and in this topic of diversity, equity and inclusion, There's an awareness piece and that's definitely what we're playing into here there's also an alignment with the understanding of someone else's experience and then there's a step into allyship and action and that's what this is further encouraging for you is to understand you know what's the conversation what are the lived experiences what can i look out for what and if i encounter something in my world what can I do to be that ally, to be that supportive person? So that's the invitation to all you listeners out there who are on your own journey. And we're we just excited as NAPO to be part of that and furthering this conversation. So you're wondering probably, who do I have with me? And I want to highlight two members. First of all, just because he's at the top of my screen today, this is Todd Allen. Todd has been an organizer and a member of NAPO for seven years now. He realized a good thing right away when he decided to become a professional and join the organization because that would also further the growth of his professional business. He is the owner of Structured Space, LLC, and he started primarily, as many of us do, working on residential projects, but he recognized his great love for technology and staying on top of digital clutter. He's Google Cloud certified in Google Workspace, as well as an Evernote certified consultant. I probably need to have a side conversation with you, Todd. (laughs) He now works with individuals and small business on organizing digital information, helping clients roll out Google Workspace, because there's a lot in there, and create information workflows with Evernote. So I'm very excited to have you with us, Todd. Janine sarna Joan is my other guest, and Janine has been a member hey girl, it's 20 years since 2001. I need to like celebrate that. She's the founder of Organize Me, Inc. based in New York City. She's a certified professional organizer. So when you see that CPO registered trademark at the end of an organizer or at the end of somebody's name, that's that very credible designation. And she's also a certified move manager. She served as the president of the New York chapter and also a term on NAPO's board of directors. She's a member of the National Association of Specialty and Senior Move Managers, NASMM, and the National Association of Black Professional Organizers, NAPO, which you will have heard about if you listened to one of our earlier DEI podcasts. So I want to welcome both of you and thank you so much for joining me to share your experience with our NAPO podcast listeners. Welcome today. Thank you nice to be here.
0: Thank you, Claire.
1: So, Janine, I'd love to start with you. What is top of mind for you about this conversation of diversity, equity, and inclusion right now?
2: Top of mind? It's something that I've lived my entire life with. It's not something, you know, it, it kind of goes through waves of total anger and other times feeling pretty relaxed about it. I have experienced it my entire life. I mean, there's not been a moment when I haven't lived it. You know, from the time that I was very young, when I lived in a neighborhood that was either Mexican, Black, or White, and I wasn't easily identifiable as either one of those things to the people that lived in the community, and especially children. So, for me, basically, I would say that what's top of mind is my hope that eventually things will change. But, you know, you think about the fact that how long ago was it that George Floyd was murdered and some things have happened because of that, but there are still people being killed. Nothing has really radically changed, you know, in the country. The conversation has changed a bit, but my hope is that people keep it in mind because it's not just about color you know diversity equity inclusion is about all kinds of people you know it's like right now a lot of transgender people are getting a lot of airtime, but still a lot of transgender people are dying as well it's definitely a conversation about how can we include human beings into the conversation, whatever the conversation is, how can we allow them to be who they are and be able and present to express that to whomever they want to without fear of being harmed?
1: Yeah, you say that beautifully because we're on the journey. It's a lifetime that we've been living. It does feel to me like more people are part of the conversation, which is, as you say, hopeful, So thank you for sharing that perspective. Todd, I want to ask you the same question. What does this conversation about diversity and equity and inclusion mean to you? Where are you in your thoughts around it right now? And and help us explain your relationship to feeling excluded, perhaps at some time.
0: Well, I think the important thing is for people to realize that it's not a homogenous society. There are others that, that are out there. And for me, it's a little bit different because As a gay man, as a minority, being a gay man, I could act like a straight person really easily. So it's a little bit different because my, I won't say my minority, but what makes me a minority is that it's inside me. It's not in front of me. So I think for me, it's just having people realize that, like I said, it's not a homogenous society and changing the hearts that are changeable and maybe understanding that some hearts are not changeable and knowing the difference perhaps so i think that's the basic point is it for society to realize that there are others out there
1: yeah you said something very powerful there recognizing some hearts are not changeable and it struck me in that moment that i say right now at this moment maybe not but it reminded me of a conversation i listened to once on the radio and this was i think years of conversation between a black man and a white man and over years of persistence in conversation, there was a change of mind, but it took years. And so it just gave me the sense that knowing when and where and what the context is, and you know, how do we push for change and can we push for change? And what does that look like? Because sometimes there's a lot of, a lot of patience required. I want to just add one element to the conversation personally here, because I'm, as you probably know, I'm in Toronto and yesterday, September 30th, was Canada's first national day of commemorating truth and reconciliation. So it's a national day of recognition for the way indigenous people have been treated in our country, which we weren't taught about in school. So it's quite powerful, Janine, because your comment that you've lived this entire, your entire life is really coming to bear because what was wonderful about yesterday, it was the media was sharing a lot of stories and I heard exactly the same thing. It's like, well, this is just another day for us in the journey of feeling excluded and abused, and many, many interesting and challenging situations came through there. But what I think is powerful is what's being asked of us as a country with respect to this particular situation, and more broadly, is that we make efforts to understand, to listen, to share stories, and to really demonstrate support and allyship for the communities that are diverse and excluded. And another community I'd like to bring up into the conversation, which is sometimes there and sometimes not. And it's an interesting one for me because I'm noticing even I'm feeling a sense of exclusivity within the community. So I just wanted to just to pop this into the conversation. So people know I I've talked about being highly sensitive and high sensitivity is a trait, not a disorder. And for that reason, I think it's often being excluded from the people that are labeled as neurodivergent. So I have participated in conferences on neurodivergence and I'm like, well, but, but why are you saying it's only one in seven when it's one in five? And so there's an interesting opportunity sometimes. And as we've seen LGBTQ expand, there's a wait, 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 I need to be part of this conversation too. So sometimes there's issue with exclusivity even in the movement to be understood, which is a fascinating conversation to have. So what I like about this whole topic though, is that you're right, Janine, you were saying it's about other and making sure that's inclusive. And one of the things that I think about too, having lived in Japan where other was me and other was non-Japanese physically appearing person. Context really matters, right? So where are you and what does that look like? And so Janine, you talked about growing up in Palo Alto and this sense of, I think it's a sense of not belonging. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience there and any connection to what you feel now today? Based on based well, on that upbringing. To be specific, it was East Palo Alto, which is <laughs> <just laughs> not Palo Alto.
2: <laughs> I think that the experience of it. I remember. Okay, so I have a story for you. When I was in the third grade, I think it was the third grade. It might have been the beginning of the fourth because I left in the fourth grade and with my mom, and we came to New York while my dad was selling the house and whatnot, but. There was a kid that was new to the school and I still remember his name. (laughs) He was so evil to me. I mean, he made it his mission to like just belittle me daily. And I realized later that he was from Nicaragua and he was not Mexican. And so he took a lot of his energy and focused it on me so that he could distract any, inform- you know, any notice of his otherness as a Nicaraguan. But it was like many years later when I, you know, had the... Put it together? Yeah, it was like, oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I still, you know, I'm not holding a grudge because I'm old. <laughs> Children are evil sometimes. But. but
1: but I think what you're tapping into, if I can observe, I, I think you've stepped into compassion for his situation.
2: I wouldn't or say no, that. no, am I overstepping <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Overstepping. okay, interesting. So, no, I think it's just that I realize that I don't necessarily, I have more of an understanding of his situation. And I also believe that, you know, as I, I've always understood subtext, you know, even as a child, I always knew that there was something else going on. You know, when people talk, there's always other stuff underneath. And I like to read subtitles (laughs) like that. That was, that realization was like, oh my goodness, this was really all about him trying to deflect. Cause you know, those Mexican kids would have been after him. (laughs) They would have had whatever they had to say. To him about being Nicaraguan, because it was definitely an issue. So he focused all of his attention and energy on somebody who was so clearly other, you know. More other than he appeared to be. Yes, definitely. Because, you know, he spoke Spanish and it was a, a bilingual school, but it was definitely torture <laughs> but I can tell you that there have been times throughout my life I mean and I think because you know I'm light-skinned my sister is dark-skinned you know I know that my different experience has a lot to do with my skin color but in California growing up I was like a little brown nut and as I've gotten older and I am indoors <laughs> more I'm like I am this color right
1: yeah. So, I'm seasonally brown and in, in winter. I'm, I'm like an olive. I don't know. I say I go kind of moldy because my skin is like olive green. I'm like, what is this color? Exactly. But yeah. A marked difference between sun and not enough sun. Yeah. Yeah. I get So you.
2: I, for a vast majority of my life, you know, not from when I was a little kid living in California, but the vast majority of my life, people just assume that I am what they are. And, you know, when I went to Italy, everybody thought I was Italian. You I know, get that. If I'm in New York, somebody who's Puerto Rican or is Spanish speaking, they'll come up to me and ask me questions, you know, because they assume I'm Puerto Rican. But, you know, I could be anything. And I definitely do believe that. You know, all of those moments in time where I felt like the other, they've informed where I am now, which is like I just assume that somebody has to tell me what they are, who they are, if they want to, because there were so many times when I was asked, so what are you anyway? You know, where are you from?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I want to bring this in to ask Todd as well. I think what we're talking about now is, There's an opportunity when you're mixed, as I am, to potentially perceive to belong to many different places, but there's places where you don't feel like you belong enough as well. And Todd, I wanted to talk to you about that because there's this concept of masking, we can blend in if we choose to. And if you're neurodivergent, there's ways to mask your challenges with neurodiversity. You can hide the fact that you're gay, like, no one has to know. I can be Italian too. I mean, I've had to argue, Italians argue with me that you are Italian. You would like you are Italian. <laughs> How does this to mask or not to mask question? Has that ever showed up in your life? I mean, there's coming out and then there's speaking out and maybe there's something to talk about in that. Todd, do you have a comment or something to share around that?
0: Well, kind of to dovetail on Janine's story, I grew up in a small town in Eastern Washington and in that environment, I really had to hide who I was. And now in the gay community, people refer to me as masculine. But back in the day when I was growing up and going to school, I would hide any kind of potential flourish that I might have behind some face of masculinity, because the teasing that I had was just, just ruthless. So I guess that masking thing fits in perfectly with what you said, Claire, that I guess masking has been a way of life for me for a great majority of my life. Just that whole, I can't appear that way. I have to appear as an other, not another, but appear like you. I've as not other, Exactly. Mm-hmm. And to also dovetail on some of the comments Janine made, my partner of six years is Filipino. And we go out and people will walk up to him and say, where are you from? And he says, Everett, (laughs) Everett, Washington. (laughs) And they're like, no, where are you from? And it's just like, I think that's just such a non-thing to say to somebody that appears different.
1: That's an interesting one, because I've had this question my, my whole life. Too. And I usually come back with now, as a kid, I didn't want to be other. I really did not want to be Indian. Half my, my heritage is five-eighths Indian, three-eighths white, so one-quarter British, one-eighth Welsh. There's the recipe, okay? And so I did not want to be Indian because my perception of Indian then was because of the great ingredients that's used in cooking, and it was carried in the clothing and so on. It was like doesn't smell good to be Indian. So people didn't like, and we, you know, it was the asafoetida. I think it was our Hings, the ingredient. I didn't want to be other. I didn't want to be different. So I was not proud of my heritage for a long time. I've graduated now. I like my nose, my feet, and my heritage. I'm okay with all of that. And I will use it as a conversation starter. So someone will say, oh, where, where are you from? What's your background? And I'm like, you want to guess? And I don't take aversion to that question. But I tell you when I did, I was one time when I did take a bit of offense, I was in a park with my son who was still an infant. He was maybe seven months old or something. And he was in one of the swings and somebody came up to me and said, why did he get here? And I'm like, well, we got here five minutes ago. And my kids are of Asian heritage. Their father is third-generation Japanese-Canadian, full Japanese parent. So I've further mixed. Now, my kids can't even explain the recipe, right? It's like, oh, yeah, that's too long. And I didn't even get the question. At first, but they assumed I imported my son. And I'm like, I have scars. Like, I have, like, I, I need some credit here for some work that went into this. And the second time it happened, I was babbling to my daughter, who was about three or four months old, in a change room after working out at the Y. And I was like, just nonsensical talking to her. And someone came up to me and said, Oh, are you speaking Chinese? <laughs> like, no, no, more scars. I've got more scars. (laughs) It's like, so that kind of stung when the assumption was that the infant that you just had wasn't even yours. But, but I want to dig into that a little bit because maybe sometimes I've asked the question, I've been curious where somebody's from and I'm really, I'm like really interested in what's the background. And so on, I'm thinking, how do we have those questions? How do we ask those questions in a non- disrespectful way? Is there a way to do it? I came up with an idea recently I'll share, but I'm curious, maybe Todd, because you're nodding, I'm going to ask you first because we'll continue on the masking. Then I'll come down to you, Janine. Is there a way to have these conversations or be curious in a way that is non-offensive?
0: Well, I think in the example of my partner, I think his race or nationality should not be the first thing that you're curious about. It's like, What's your name?
1: What should it be? What did you have for breakfast?
0: (laughs) What, 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 (laughs) What is your name? How are you? What do you do? How long have you been in Seattle? That kind of thing. You know, it's like, why would race or nationality be the first thing you would want to know about somebody? It's like, that's a pretty coarse view of things, I really believe. But I have to excuse human behavior, too, because we have to categorize to understand. But... Having said that, I will go back to being interested in the person and not the nationality
1: or heritage. Okay, that's interesting. I think, does it have something to do with that? I mean, that's the first thing that somebody, because we're – in large part visual for anybody who's cited, we're visually processors. And so that's the first thing we think of commenting. I mean, I would say, I probably comment on people's fashion more on. It's like, where'd you get that coat? Cause it's something I see. And it's like, I love the pattern or something, but yeah, you raise a good point. So I'll cue from there and then come back down to you, Janine. I have asked somebody their name. And then I often comment, oh, if I haven't heard, it, it's like, oh, that's a beautiful name. What's the origin of the name? because I do love language and I found that's a, not where are you from, but where's your name from? And which may or may not be where the person's from. I have a German Italian friend who's has a Greek name. So like, you know, there's more variant disconnection anyway, but what do you think of that?
0: Well, I think what you said is you, the first thing you asked was the name and then you gently entered into a conversation about race or nationality, but just to blurt out, where are you from?
1: Well, because a lot of times this isn't loaded. It's coming from a place of, oh, you're not from here. And I'm, gonna, I'm noticing that. And that's what I'm going to lead into my... So context, again, this is my introduction. Your introduction to me and mine to you is, you're not from here. That's sort of the play on that card on the table. Janine, what do you think about this conversation and how to stay curious but non-offensive?
2: I think you have to realize that sometimes people don't want to tell you where they're from, that that's not... you know. I don't think that that should be even in the top 10 questions in a conversation because, okay. So there was this book, remember the painted bird by Jersey Kaczynski. Do you remember that? It was like old, old, it's an old book. It was from the seventies. And I remember reading that book in the eighties, I think. And I totally, it was one of the stories in the book is this idea that, you know, you take a bird from its flock, and then you paint it a different color, and it goes back to the flock, and the flock attacks it because <laughs> you know, because it does. They no longer recognize. This is a it. sad story. Well, it's an interesting thing because I think that you know Todd was talking about how in his growing up he had to mask, you know, wear this mask, and he's rightly so. Like I have never been able to wear a mask, and honestly after a certain amount of time, you know, having people ask me all the time, so what is your mask? (laughs) Like, what are you masking? Or what, who is that? (laughs) I feel like, you know, I've gone through periods of time when I would say, I would tell people this, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other, you know, and I own them all, you know, whereas in this country, if you were one drop black, you know, octoroons and stuff like that, then you were black. Right. But I am black. I am English, you know, or Irish, Scotch, Scotch, Irish, and I am Ramapo and Mohawk. So like, there's a few things that are mixed in, but I also own it. You know, it's like, this is who I am, but I don't necessarily need to share it with you. Exactly who I am, how I identify. I do identify as a person of color and I make that clear to people because, and I know I'm kind of diverging a little bit from your question, but I have something I want to tell you. Like when I was growing up, I have cousins who I kind of helped to raise. I was the main babysitter for them. And I love them. They're like little brothers and little sister. And I remember like my mother was disowned by her father because she hooked up with my dad and had me and I remember babysitting them one day and I saw a picture of my little cousin that was in the in a frame and it was from behind and I could see I could recognize my the older cousin he was walking, you know, with this little hand holding the hand of an older man. And I was like, oh, who's that in the picture? And I found out that it was, you know, somebody who was my grandfather, who I'd never met, (laughs) you know, because I was not white enough, you know. And, you know, whereas my cousins are Jewish and, and white. And I was like, oh, okay. That was like in my teens. And that really, like, I had to really turn through and think about that. And I realized that a big piece of that was because I was not the right color, but there have been several times over the years, it's not always people who are non-colored who are the people that cause problems or give me things to think about. Like in college, I went to this talk about multiculturalism and, mixed race and things like that. And a black woman who was a student in the Ujima, the black house on campus, she raised her hand and she started talking about how she felt so sorry for people who were mixed because it was so confusing for them, though she is not mixed. And she wanted to speak for me. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever felt that a black person could be racist, (laughs) like I had never, you know, (laughs) and my family, you know, that's black, I always felt included and a part of the family. And like, you know, that my father's side of the family always was, you know, they were my people. So there are times when you have to Decide how you're going to present yourself. And of course, I raised my hand right away (laughs) after she said what she had to say so that I could like school her. And I do think that people need to think about like, because would you ask a a gay guy, you know, like, so (laughs) like something super offensive, like, oh, who's the top or like, who's the wife? You know, I've heard that. And I think. That's insane. <laughs> you know, these, are, these happen to be two men, you know.
1: Can I ask you what you said to her to school her? What you would say in that situation to to sort of bring somebody's understanding up so they want to continue to learn? So I said, basically, I'm a mixed
2: person and you have no idea what my experience has been. And you cannot tell me or put words into my mouth about how I am somehow... You know, diminished by the fact that I'm mixed. I embrace every single side of it. That's who I am. And I am special and wonderful and amazing. And for you not to be able to know that, it's because
1: you only see the fact that I'm not exactly what you are. I hear you. I hear you so hard. Do you think that in her mind, she was trying to be supportive and it just got? No, she just,
2: no. 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 (laughs) I mean, it's like, it wasn't about compassion or anything like that. It was
1: about her opinion. We've spoken before and you tell me like, you're not even wishful thinker and thinking, you know, where people are coming from. Like, no, it's not that it's straight up. Not okay thinking. And it's interesting because I, I think this is some learning for me. I listened to the the other podcast with the panel with Cindy McKenzie, and Tanisha. And I forget who was telling the story about a dog that barked. I think it might have been McKenzie. Tanisha. No, it was I'm, I'm McKenzie. Sure. Was it McKenzie? Mackenzie? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Mackenzie was talking about the dog and the client who blamed the dog's yapping on the texture of Mackenzie's hair that her hair which is naturally curly and beautiful could have been terrifying to the dog and the dog was reacting to that and my first reaction was well if the dog had been kicked by a person with the same hair it's possible that that could have been an associative trauma but highly unlikely that this is what happened right but my first question is that possible is it possible i'm like I don't know. I try not to jump to bias, but maybe I'm not seeing things as they are enough. And so that was just an observation as I listened to the story. I'm like, yeah, that's completely like ugh, yeah, it's distasteful. But how do you stand up to these things on your own? And how do you how do you leave the person going, oh, I learned something and I'm uncomfortable? but I want to keep learning. I think that's that's my goal, but maybe, or Janine, you're going to look at me and go, nice try, girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think
2: it's, you know, you have to, everybody's different, right? You know, like everyone, other people who are like me, mixed, they have had different experiences that are, are not like mine. And I don't, there's so many different pieces of it. Because, you know, Tanisha and I had conversations when we were preparing our NAPO conference workshop. And, you know, she's not all black, you know, like she's also mixed. And I think that it's, we live in a country that is still, hasn't gone through the effort to to repair the wrongs what this country was built on and founded. And, you know, there's so many different ways. I mean, I'm, I don't want to focus on race because it's not all about race.
1: Yeah. I'm going to take it from there actually. And, and then Tana, I want to bring you back into the conversation as well. When I look at the disability and inclusivity area, we talk a lot about not focusing on a disorder, not focusing on a label, but focusing on barriers and really coming at it with a do you need anything is there anything in your way and how can i be helpful and i wonder if that's not a great mentality to have for inclusivity no matter what the issue is i mean this is coming out of specifically disability situations where some of the challenges are invisible and i know for example in post-secondary education right now they're expecting students to put their hand up and say i need this 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 and this and There hasn't been, I haven't found really good videos to watch as examples of having these conversations. And so I remember with Black Lives Matter and some friends of mine in Toronto who are Black and some of the conversations being, don't ask a Black person to teach you what to do here because we're already burdened already. Thank you very much. But where is... Where is something that I can watch and learn from to get good language, to really be the person who's not putting my foot in my mouth if I do want to be an ally and that I don't I don't have a side effect of offending someone? I think maybe that's kind of the point of this whole conversation is to say, how can you be an ally in such a way that's with such grace and love and affection and support that you can't be misunderstood?
0: Well, don't come at it from your own perspective. and. I'll give you a story, which was interesting. When my partner and I got together, we were in downtown Seattle and we were going to cross the street. And I said, oh, this is jaywalk. And he said, yeah, that's fine. You're white. I'm like, what? And then it finally dawned on me that friends of his had received tickets for jaywalking, which I never have. And then another time we were were driving up to Stevens Pass to go skiing and he was speeding and the state patrol pulled him over. And so he got everything out, rolled his window down, and he put his hands up on the steering wheel and waited for the patrolman to come talk to him. When that happens to me, I roll the window down. I say, hey, what's up? You know, what do you need? And and those perspectives just came flooding in. And so I do want to back up and say one kind of funny thing. When I was talking about how people will walk up to him and say, where are you from? I said, did I ever say that to you? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, no, you didn't. I was like, oh, thank goodness. (laughs) But I think to answer your question, it's like, I don't think there's a video you can watch. I don't think there's a a podcast you can listen to. I think it's just being aware of of that learning experience. Like for me with the jaywalking or being pulled over, you know, that assimilating that, because that was just that was a rush of knowledge, I think, that I've never really experienced before because it just jerked me out of, my, out of my environment that I grew up in, which, by the way, the first time I ever saw a person of color when I was growing up was when I was eight years old.
1: Oh, wow. And you remember it?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Wow. I, uh, yeah, I appreciate those insights, because at the same time as being a gay man, you're also a white man who, in many instances, then has the privilege of being a white man in today's society. So there's this there's this conundrum of being perceived like you have all the privilege. And in some cases, you do have privilege, as we all do in different areas. And in some cases, clearly not. Thank you very much. So I think it is multifaceted, and the context matters. And so... Yeah, I think if we could say something to listeners out there of what we encourage them to do then, is there, I want to throw it back to each of you, Todd, I'll start with you, is if you could say something to a listener to encourage them on their journey of assimilation and learning, any other further thoughts you have on that?
0: That's really a tough question. And it's hard for me to get out of my own perspective. And I think that
1: That's okay. From your, well, this is it, right? You just said don't come from your perspective, right? But it's, this is where we all do come from. We're incubated in our own perspective and we have to have some kind of commitment to being curious because how else are we going to learn and compassion? But it can so so quickly be misconstrued or be offensive like the woman in the park who said, oh, when did he get here? She was just wanting to con- talk and find some common connection about potentially a similar situation. She didn't know. She just boofed <laughs> threw a bomb on me here. And I was like, what are you talking about?
0: But think, think of the genesis of that question, though. The genesis of that question was she made a, just a wholly incorrect assumption. And that's what happens when people approach my partner. And going back to being a gay man, I mean, I can, I can put the mask on and I can just be heteronormative, but you know, that's not a choice that I make anymore. And I guess when I, when I confront somebody, I feel like, is this person worth confronting or is it just like give them the brush off and I don't care. And, and so then people that I confront, usually I feel like they have a choice or they have a chance to learn and grow.
1: It's a clear investment of your time and energy to choose to be in that moment, to either take a stand. And there's a story I want to come back to you to invite you to share on that. When you, you know, we have some times to speak up for ourselves. And right now I've been talking about how do other people speak up for us, but there's times when we have to speak up for ourselves. Before I come back to you, Todd, and ask you for that question, is there anything that you wanted to add, Janine, on in terms of your like your perspective of what you would really encourage someone is like, like yesterday, for example, for me, with the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, I was reading on from Indigenous people on what they, there's 94 calls to action, I think, of actions they want people to take. One of them was wearing orange. In the meeting I was in yesterday, I was the only one wearing orange, but I wasn't wearing one of the orange t-shirts by an Aboriginal artist, which I felt was even a better, you know, embodiment. But it's like... There's many levels and depths of actions. What's your feeling on that? I'll stop talking now because that's a long question.
2: Okay. I might have to ask you to ask the question again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, your sense of what you would be asking people to do to be an ally that you would be like, I like that. I appreciate that. I think it's,
2: I don't know. I don't really feel like me personally, I would be asking someone to be an ally for me because I, I'm super vocal. <laughs> like I can, I know how to say what I need to say in just about any situation. But you know, there's like simple things, like when you walk into a room and everyone looks like you. Like look around. <laughs> like think about it. How many of the people that are in here are just like you, like, that, that's the way I used to feel in Napo. I would go to a Napo conference. You know, my first one was in 2002 and I walked in and everyone, just about every single person there was white, a white woman. You know, I don't think I saw not one man. And it wasn't until a later when, but I would say, to be an ally, it's really when you see something, say something. It's not. It's not really the. But be careful. But like,
1: think about what to say.
2: Yeah, but you know, it, it could be anything. Like I remember years and years ago, this black guy was standing on this curb trying to hail a cab, and every cab kept passing him. And so I stepped out into the street and I hailed a cab for him, and I was like, "Here you go." <laughs> I mean, that's like a small thing to do. But when you notice things where somebody is, because it doesn't always have to be something negative or I wouldn't want you to put yourself in harm's way, though, to truly be an ally, you could, (laughs) you could, if you wanted to be a co-conspirator on some level.
1: There's some bravery involved. First of all, there's the awareness to notice. And then there's some bravery and some crafting, some word crafting to figure out what do I say now? And I think it's worth thinking about maybe some of the what ifs, maybe some of the what ifs you might get into in your professional life now. And where you you do, like you said, notice how diverse is this? I called out a speaker who was, he's a top notch speaker. I have so much respect for this gentleman. And he shared that he was in top billing with some other incredible world-class speakers. And there was one woman. And no, no people of color whatsoever. And I said, at least there's a woman. Congratulations. And at least there's a woman. And he's like, I thought the same thing. And I went back to the organizers and I told them. He replied to me. But I thought in this post, do I say something? And I thought, I think knowing him, I could say something because I don't want to detract from his celebration, but I wanted to say, I'm just, why are we not seeing more diversity here? And so it, it is sort of knowing when the, the speaking piece pieces, it takes it takes a lot of bravery, I think. And it should take less. And the more we do it, the less it takes. So I'm like you. I speak up a lot, but not always. I think back to, and I'm coming, coming back to you, Todd, in one minute before we sort of move towards a close. I'm thinking back to a time in my 20s when I was being verbally harassed by my boss. And it happened in a meeting. There were probably about 10 people in the meeting. And it was sexual harassment of a verbal nature in the meeting and it happened to me and i'll remember the individual sitting across from me and he said what is this pick on claire day i'll never forget that he actually spoke up and i was at that moment ready to just get up and walk out of the office because this had been happening for a few months and i will never forget that he did that he just called it out and it stopped and then I made the sexual harassment complaints to HR and that was in a whole another, another story, but, and 13 other women had issues <laughs> as well, but I was the first one to raise it with HR. Which, so there's some bravery in being an ally and there's incredible bravery in speaking up. And I want to come back now to that bravery Todd, in the story you told uh, told me before we started talking today. And wonder if you could share that as a bit of a close to this to kind of highlight what individual exclusivity feels like and that moment of bravery?
0: Well, the story was that before I became an organizer, I always wanted to sell cars. I'm a car nut, and I was always fascinated with the car sales process. So I was hired at the Accurate Dealership in Seattle. And in the car business, the Friday sales meeting is a big deal. It's this ceremony almost. And so I was sitting at my first Friday sales meeting, And one of the other top salesmen who happened to be an ex-NFL football player who's stood about 6'5 and maybe 275, he told a homophobic joke. And at that point, I had to decide if I was going to live in a shadow in my career there or if I was going to speak out. And so after the meeting, I walked up to him and I said, I didn't really enjoy that joke because I'm a gay man and I would appreciate it if that wouldn't happen anymore. And the cool thing was, is he said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't understand that. I didn't know that at all. promise you I will never let it happen again. From that point on, my experience at the dealership was just top-notch. Everybody was welcoming. There was no discrimination, no offhand comments at all. Everybody was really welcoming. So, and to dovetail that onto the organizing profession, you know, you can assume that somebody's heterosexual and then you can just enter into the spouse and whatever I always have to enter into my relationship with kind of a cautionary approach and I have to wait until there's some rapport. Maybe I understand where they're coming from before I divulge that I'm in a partnership and I'm a gay man. So having to navigate those challenging waters is I think just something that I'm always going to be presented with. But I'm just glad that in my in the time that i've been out that i have made the choice to choose the path of truth because if you if you fail to make that choice then you'll always live in the shadows because if you don't make the choice then then it's always harder to make the choice later
1: yeah thank you for sharing that you would have had to continue to mask essentially and show up in a certain way and yeah how do you how do you call it at later do you wish somebody at that table would have said something
0: No, not necessarily. I felt it was my responsibility. And you know the car business is kind of a good old boy network. And so I guess I wouldn't have expected anybody in that environment to make that call out. But I did. And then it never happened again.
1: Yeah, I'm glad for that. It's amazing. When people are in that situation, as I was in that meeting at work and that wholly inappropriate comment came up, I was so triggered with emotion that... I didn't have the ability. Normally, Janine, like you, I'm pretty good at speaking up and standing out and like, you don't, you know, the buck stops here. But at 23 years old, in that situation, I didn't have the skills. And so I think from the allyship perspective, it's that noticing piece that you were talking about Janine and Todd I'm so happy for you that it came together in that moment and you had a good situation afterwards i just want to close on thinking about the organizing profession now and if there's anything you'd like to say to listeners about our particular profession organizing and productivity consulting corporate world residential world we we have our fingers and a lot of pies out there. So is there anything, any message you'd like to leave as a takeaway for people as they consider their professional lives and being more inclusive? And Janine, I'll come back to you on that one.
2: Okay. So I think that people in the organizing professional, even if you're working doing productivity it doesn't really matter but what i've found over these 20 years of being a napo member is that people tend to try to work with the people that are very as close to them as they possibly can you know they're very similar to them and i think it's easy for them to create a rapport so I used to work for someone else, and she used to send me out on all the jobs with the moms with little children because I, I was a mom with a, a small child. <laughs> and it was easy to build rapport with that with that group of moms that I, I worked with. But I think that in order to really, truly be inclusive in your business, you need to be aware. like look at your website if you have pictures of people, is everybody on there white? You know, like, is your team primarily white people? Like, think about if you have a team, you know, so many organizers are solopreneurs, but it all comes back to noticing, you know, and seeing it from a different perspective. Like I always, you know, whenever I see marketing material for anybody in any situation, and it seems very... Homogeneous, then I realize this person really doesn't see what I see. I mean, it's you can see it when a whole bunch of men put something together and there's not one woman or there's the token woman or there's the token person of color. You know what I mean? It's like, there's always stuff like that,
1: but the way something's designed, it's like a man did not design this. Yes. This bathroom in a hotel is yes. not. Is and
2: not I, I can walk yeah, into right? somebody's home and see a closet and say, "Oh, this was designed for a man, definitely not for a woman." You know that there are so many different ways that that you can just notice. And that's what I would say. And it, it makes it possible for you or educate yourself too. Like, you know, here in New York, there's a huge population of Jewish people who eat kosher. So setting up a kosher kitchen is it's a very specific way of doing that. And you know, to educate yourself about that, it's a good thing, you know, because then you can say, we can help you set up your kosher kitchen. <laughs> you <know? laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's to be aware of these things. So, and maybe it's taking advantage of the things that come up in your life that can expand your understanding of different groups. So I got invited to the bar mitzvah celebration for a friend. And she said, oh, you like my son's going to be on at this time and this time. And this is what you really, this is the minutes you need to listen to. I listened to the whole thing. Because I thought, well, number one, the music, is it's beautiful, and I wanted to appreciate more and to understand it more. So I watched the whole thing. And then we had the tragedy of a Muslim family being attacked, being killed by a car in London, and they nationally televised the service. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to watch the service because this is an opportunity to understand a culture I wouldn't normally be invited to or understand but there's an opportunity to understand. So maybe it's tuning into those opportunities too to to just naturally in your life stay curious and stay noticing so that you can continue to open your your spirit. Todd, I want to just give you that question before we close out this call. Is there something that you would like to see or recommend listeners do in their personal and professional lives, rather, pardon me, when they're in the organizing and productivity business now to be more inclusive?
0: Well, I think my comments are kind of directed at NAPO, really. And when I went to my first conference in LA, it was a very homogeneous environment And I'm really excited about the DEI initiatives of NAPO and I'm just, I guess I'm just reaching out to NAPO and just say, let's keep it going and let's welcome people with open arms as like we used to say, the organizing authority. So I just say, let's just keep moving in that direction. I think those are my comments.
1: Thank you. I have to, it just made, reminded me of when I was listening to the other podcast with Cindy, Tanisha, and Mackenzie. And Sarah was a phenomenal host of this show for two years before I came on board. But I laughed at this because at one point she said, open your arms wider. And I thought she said, open your arms wider. And I just thought, no, no, that's not what you mean. And I, I was walking in the park and I burst out laughing. I'm like, no, 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 wider, wider. That's what we need. So <laughs> hashtag open your arms wider. That's a great note to close. I want to thank both of you, Todd Allen and Janine Sarna-Jones, two longtime NAPO members, for joining me and sharing your perspectives. And your wise counsel of what we can do individually and as part of this organization to stay inclusive in our approach to our businesses and the way we actually engage in our lives. So thank you so much for joining me. For all you listeners out there, definitely check out the diversity, equity, and inclusion episodes at NAPO. Also tune in to your chapters and the conference because the content, this is now, it's not just a one-year initiative, this is NAPO's way of going forward is to continually have this be a conversation and a way of thinking. So definitely speak up and speak out as you are a member of the organization or if you're listening and you're not, whereas it shows up in your life, definitely this is an invitation for you too. So tune in to more at napopodcast.com. You can find all the episodes there. It's pretty quiet in podcasts, Lynn, when we're putting something out. So we'd love to hear from you. If you have a comment, toss one out on social media. We're in all the places. And we'd love to hear what's resonating with you, what you'd like to hear more of. And if a story, you have a story you'd like to share about your own diversity, equity, and inclusion experience, by all means, this is a great place to bounce off from and share your experience. So until next time, please stay safe, be kind, and enjoy your journey.
0: That's all for today's episode of Standout, brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Be sure to visit NAPO.net to join, learn more about our educational offerings, local chapters, and more.